Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. We are uh, in, the, in the Byzantine tradition, still in the Feast of the Dormition, which we celebrate for nine days, the, the Dormition of Our Lady, or the Assumption as it has come to be known in the West. So I will sing the proper hymn for Our Lady's Feast. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In giving birth, you retained your virginity. In falling asleep, you did not forsake the world, O Theotokos. You were taken to life, O Mother of life, and by your prayers you deliver our souls from death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Once again, I welcome all of you to these two talks, uh, Introduction to the Psalter as the Heart and Foundation of the Church's Prayer. I said that in these, uh, these two talks, I would attempt to address uh, three uh, issues or, or, or focuses, but maybe a better word, regarding the Psalms. And we managed to do one of those last week. The first question was, in what sense is the Psalter the foundation of the prayer of the church? And hopefully we arrived at a realization of how deep that foundation lies. As to quote John Chrysostom from last week, David is first, middle, and always of the church's prayer. Uh, first, middle, and last, always. And therefore, if we are going to pray with and in the church, that means that the Psalter will be at the foundation of our prayer as well. Now, this evening, there are two more points to emphasize. The first will be, it is important for us to use, understand, and pray the Psalms as our Lord is described as doing so in the New Testament, as in the Gospels, and as the other writers of the New Testament use and understand the Psalms. And that is something, as you'll see, that is very specific, very specific. It has given birth to what could be called the traditional, or I would say also the patristic or manner that we have received from the church fathers, the patristic method of interpreting scripture, which flows directly from the way 
the Lord Jesus interprets scripture in the gospel and the way St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, and others do in the remainder of the New Testament. And then the final point, and this one I'm, I will tell you in advance, is going to stir up the waters and be a little bit more controversial, but I shall do it <laughs> because I think it is important. And that is, and I think that for many of you in, in the case of this final point, it may be something new, something that maybe you've just heard a little bit about uh, and haven't thought much about because you've only heard a little bit about it. But that is that it is, it is also important to pray in whatever language we are praying, to pray the text of the Psalms that the church has prayed from the beginning, as far as we know. And the reason why we know it is that there is a particular text of the Psalms that is quoted in the Gospel and the New Testament as well. So uh, those two points. For the most part, I think I maybe mentioned this a little bit uh, last week. For the most part, a lot of times now, when either on the level of Bible studies in churches, whether done by, by people one by one or done in a group together, going from there to, to the, I hate to use this term because I think it's very misleading, the, the professional study of scripture in academic theology. I'm, I'm not sure that theology was ever meant to be a, a professional endeavor. But uh, anyway, on all of those levels of scripture study, now for a century or more, and this began under primarily Protestant influence, but it has spread uh, to Catholic scripture study and, and others as well. Orthodox too, they've been influenced by it. Nobody's escaped it. Uh, and that is that the, the primary emphasis is given to getting people to understand in a basic way or in a very, very technical and highly developed way, the literal historical sense of scripture. So all kinds of effort is put into trying to teach people, again, either basically or, or in a, in a so-called very elevated manner, what it is thought the original authors of the books of scripture, whether the Old or the New Testament, intended to say when they wrote what they wrote. And so much emphasis has been put on this that many people have come to think that this is really what constitutes the understanding of scripture, knowing what the original text meant in its historical context. However, However, the fathers of the church, and we find this in many sources, it's, we find it in St. Augustine in the West especially, but it's found also in, in the great fathers, the Greek fathers, Syrian fathers. We are told that there is not simply one level of understanding scripture, the historical or literal level, but there are not just one other, but three others. Now, some some writers, St. Thomas Aquinas, for, for example, uh, some writers 
group the other three senses as kind of variations on a theme. So St. Thomas Aquinas would speak of the literal sense and the spiritual sense, and then he would subdivide the spiritual sense into three. However, the majority of the, of the fathers of the church would speak of those three expressions of the spiritual interpretation of scripture as each being a particular way in their own right. And I think, I think now, uh, with especially the better sources used for Catholic Bible studies, maybe more and more people are aware of this, but the four uh, levels of scriptural interpretation are as follows. The literal or historical, as we have mentioned. The second would be, has, has depending on the source you're reading, it's called two different things. Uh, sometimes it's called the allegorical but sometimes it's called the typological. And it's that second uh, expression, typological, I'm gonna spend some time in our class on this evening. The third sense is the moral sense. And that has a more fancy word, the tropological sense, but the, the moral sense is the way, and this is what often people do when they kind of read the Bible on their own. They will read a passage of scripture and they will ask the question, what is this saying to me now about how I should live my life? What is the life lesson to be derived from this? The moral sense to teach me how to live the, the way of life that God wants me to live. And then the final sense is again, has a nice, uh, noble-sounding Greek name, Greek-derived name, the anagogical sense, anagogy is up, to go up. And I will give it a simpler uh, title that I think I may, I, I don't know of anybody else who calls it this, but I think it helps. I call it the ultimate sense. And this is the reading and digesting, remember meditation as digestion and making the, the words of scripture alive in oneself. This is the entering into the words of scripture from the viewpoint of eternity, from the viewpoint of eternity, not from the viewpoint of simply past, future, but in the eternal present, the now of God, probably the best one of the best examples of this that I've ever heard of was that in the concentration camp of Dachau, and in Dachau, they had especially many clergy, the Nazis uh, imprisoned many clergy of all kinds, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant. And uh, they all, the clergy were all in these, in these clergy bunkers. And the imprisoned clergy in Dachau had a practice every day, um, uh, Anne was speaking of, of the beginning of the office in the, in the Roman rite with Psalm 94, the, the invitatory psalm. The prisoners of Dachau developed a practice of ending the day by praying Psalm 45. Psalm 45, I'll just turn to it quickly. And I won't read the whole text, uh, but just to refresh you uh, with the content of Psalm 45, it begins by saying, and, and 
I, again, I remind you, when I give numbers of Psalms, I'm, I'm giving them from the traditional or Septuagint numbering. God is our refuge and strength, the helper in afflictions that have come heavily upon us. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be shaken and the mountains are hurled to the depths of the sea. Then going on in that psalm, it says, though nations are in turmoil and kingdoms totter, the Most High uttered his voice, the earth was shaken, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our helper. Come behold the works of God, what wonders he has wrought on earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He will crush the bow and shatter the weapons. He will burn the shields with fire. Well, when the prisoners in Dachau historically were praying these words, it seemed very much that the Nazis were very much in power, that their bows and weapons were not being crushed. And therefore, for the prisoners to pray those words from the viewpoint of eternity, from the viewpoint of the eternal presence of God, was the only way for them to pray them in true faith. It couldn't be from the viewpoint of here and now. It had to be from the viewpoint of eternity. So that's an example of the ultimate sense of scripture. Now, I'll go back to that second sense that I mentioned, the allegorical or typological. And I prefer the second term. Uh, just to take a couple seconds, the reason why I prefer it is that oftentimes now when we hear the word allegory, we think of, oh, that's somebody pretending uh, he, he or she is somebody else, like in a play or in, or in a, uh, some sort of, of writing. Uh, somebody stands for somebody else. Uh, in fact, or is in the persona of somebody else. You know that uh, the English word person, which comes from the Latin persona, uh, which comes from the verb in Latin personare, which means to sound, sonare, to sound through, personare. What that has, the origin of that is that in Greek and then later Roman plays, you didn't have one actor or actress for every part. You had a limited number of, of actors, and they they generally uh, uh, played many characters all at once in the same in the same play. So that when they were playing one role, they'd hold one mask in front of themselves of the character they were they were portraying then, and they would sound through the mask personare. And then when it was another character, there'd be another mask. So it's somebody pretending to be somebody else. So that's why the expression allegorical, I think, because it is, it's subject to so many various ways of understanding, doesn't serve as well as the expression typological, a type. What is meant by a type? Because we need to understand this well, because the Lord... Jesus Christ in the Gospels applies the Psalms to himself typologically. He does it in general when he says that everything after he has risen from the dead, he says to the disciples, I quoted this last week, that everything in the Psalms and the law of Moses, the prophets, he mentions all three, but everything in the Psalms that is written about him 
written about him had to be fulfilled. And so you might uh, you might uh, understand why his hearers perhaps were uh, were puzzled. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is spoke is speaking not in this case about the Psalms, but of the law, the Torah, the law of Moses. And Jesus says to them, if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me because he wrote about me. Well, people would say, where? Where are you mentioned there? Now, I'll give you a specific example. It's the best one in scripture and the best one in the liturgical use of the church to illustrate this typological understanding of the Psalms. It comes from the Psalm that is quoted most in the New Testament. If I had, if, if I, if all of us were in the physical presence of each other, I would ask the question, who knows what Psalm is quoted most in the, in the New Testament? Sometimes there's been some success when I ask that, but most of the time people don't know. The answer to the question is Psalm 109, or as it is known in the, in the Hebrews, in the rabbinic Psalter, the Masoretic Psalter, Psalm 110. And most of the Psalters you have will probably have it as 110, maybe with 109 in parentheses. Psalm 109, and I'll, I'll recite for you the first verses of that Psalm, and it'll be one that's familiar, that's familiar to you. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will send you the scepter of power from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. With you is dominion on the day of your birth in the splendor of holiness. From the womb before the morning star have I begotten you. The Lord has sworn and he will not repent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then there are, there are other verses as well. But those first four verses are the portion of that psalm that is quoted many times in the New Testament. Jesus, our Lord, quotes it, and it's recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's quoted in the Acts of the Apostles. It's quoted heavily in the letter to the Hebrews. And in the case in which our Lord quotes it, it's because he has asked, and this is during those days after the entry of our Lord into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, when he is teaching in the temple on the Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week. And he asks his listeners, and there's a heavy presence of the scribes and Pharisees and priests in those, in, among those listeners. He asks them a question. They have been asking him questions. Now he asks them one. And he says, what do you say about the Messiah, the Christ? Whose son is he? And they give the, what we would call uh, to, you know, project, <laughs> 20 centuries past, he, they, give him, they give him the correct catechism answer because they know they are, they are the learned ones. They say, the son of David, that's who he is. The surprise 
is that Jesus is not content with their answer. He does not say wrong, but he says, in effect, not enough. It's not enough of an answer. And so now uh, I'll, I'll read to you from Matthew's account, Matthew, at the end of Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Matthew twenty two forty one. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David thus calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is he David's son? Now, what is being said there is of critical importance. And it's again, it's found in, in all three of the synoptic gospels. Jesus says that to title the Messiah, the son of David, is not enough. Because he says, David in the spirit, so he makes it clear that the, the psalm is sung by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. David in the spirit calls the Messiah Lord. And when does a father call his son Lord and place the son in a position superior to the father. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, Jesus, in effect, is saying the following, and I can say this with confidence because it is found universally in the church fathers and in liturgical texts and liturgical use of this psalm in the church, not only, and uh, in addition to, to its presence in scripture. Jesus says, in effect, that the historical sense of Psalm 109, and if you look at the text, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You will be told in all interpretations that are focused on the literal historical level, you will be told that this is a psalm about David and his son Solomon. Now, if you read in the books of Kings and Chronicles, you will, you will see that David declared his son Solomon, his successor, before he died. That David made it clear that Solomon was the anointed king to follow him. So David does call his own son in that sense, Lord. David gives Solomon the same title he has, king. Jesus our Lord says, in effect, he doesn't, I mean, I, I'm not quoting the gospel at this point. I'm interpreting, but I'm doing it in a most traditional manner. Jesus is saying, in effect, this psalm, initially about David and Solomon, is finally about me. It isn't, or let's put it another way. It is for a time about David and Solomon, yes. We don't, we don't discard the traditional literal 
level of scriptural interpretation, but it's only partial because the story of Israel, including the story of David and Solomon, happens because it leads up, says Jesus, to me. And if there, if I'm not here, if I have not come, all of these stories of the Old Testament, all of these types, what is a type? A type is an arrow that points to something beyond itself. There are so many of them. You, we read them, especially at the crucial liturgical services of the year, particularly the Paschal Vigil. Paschal Vigil in every tradition, when the, the Old Testament lessons began, the first is the creation. The creation account speaks of God resting on the seventh day. That expression, God rests on the seventh day, is speaking in its initial sense about creation, the beginning of time, and the calling from non-existence into being of the cosmos, but it's also an arrow pointing forward to something after that, that fulfills it, namely that there is going to come a day when God in person is going to rest on the seventh day by being dead and buried after his sacrifice for the life of the world. So the seventh day rest is a type then we hear of Abraham and Isaac in, in the readings that are used at the Paschal Vigil. In the sacrifice, and Abraham does sacrifice Isaac. No, he does not slay him, but he sacrifices him from within his will. He obeys God's command to sacrifice the one thing he's waited for all his life, which is this son. Now he has the son. And the son is on the threshold of entering into manhood, 12 years old. 13, you have bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah. So at, right at that point, when Isaac is to enter into his manhood, Abraham is told to sacrifice him. And then we are told that they go on their way, on their journey, and they go up a hill and Abraham is, or what is, what is Isaac carrying on his back? Isaac is carrying on his back the wood going up the hill. Does the type become obvious? Isaac is bound, and Abraham takes his knife to kill him, and the angel stops him. But even that is not the end of the story. There's a substitute found for Isaac. For Abraham finds, is, is indicated by the angel that there's this ram caught by its horns in a thicket of thorns. Offer the ram, Abraham is told, in place of Isaac. Now that is a story in itself, but its meaning is to be found in its typological sense. It points to something beyond itself. Because Thus, only begotten Son of the Father incarnate is going to go up the hill of Golgotha carrying the wood, and there isn't going to be any substitute for him. He is going to be the true sacrifice. Nevertheless, even though Isaac is not offered, 
in a, in a bloody manner. Isaac is not destroyed. Abraham offers him from his will. Jesus voluntarily, in communion with the will of his father, offers himself. And even in his death, he is not destroyed because his death is a life-giving death. So it's a type. The exodus passing through the sea is a type. The going into the promised land is a type. The letter to the Hebrews says that Joshua brings the children of Israel into the promised land, but Joshua couldn't give them rest because there remains an ultimate rest, an ultimate Sabbath for the people of God. The geographical promised land is a type of a promised land that isn't a a little piece of earthly geography. It points to the eternal kingdom. So these are the types. And in the case of Psalm 109, Jesus says that this song about David and Solomon is a song about me and my father. And in that way, now, when Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke that everything in the Psalms must be fulfilled concerning him, then then it says that he opened the minds of the disciples to comprehend the scriptures. So it's in that context. They are opened to see that it's all about him. It's all about him. To give you another example from another psalm, I'll turn to the letter to the Hebrews. And at the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, the writer, we don't know who the writer was. Traditionally, Hebrews is ascribed to St. Paul, but even in the ancient days of the church, a lot of people had doubts about that. So we'll leave that there. But at the very beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, there's a whole string of quotations from the Psalms and the prophets. Beginning in in Hebrews 1, Hebrews 1st chapter, 5th verse. To which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, this day have I begotten you? That comes from Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. All of you lovers of the liturgy, I hope you're all lovers of the liturgy. Because this verse, in both the Latin and the Byzantine rites, expresses the beginning of the celebration of the nativity of Christ. Uh, The introit, the official proper text, for the midnight mass in the Latin rite is the famous Dominus Dixit Ad Me Filius Meus S2 Ego Hodie Genuite. The Lord said to me, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. And in the same way at the liturgy of the Christmas vigil in the Byzantine rite, when the time has come for the proclamation of the epistle and gospel, this psalm verse is sung. So which of the angels did God ever say? You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I'm skipping around in this first uh, chapter of Hebrews. Again, when he, meaning God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him, which is a quote not from the Psalms, but from Deuteronomy. And again, of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits 
and his ministers a flame of fire. Or your, your translation that, that many of you might have might say, he makes his angels winds, but text actually says in Greek, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. That is a verse from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. You cover yourself with light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You make the, you lay the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make your angels spirits and your ministers a flaming fire. I will use this as one example also of what I'm going to try to develop for my last point this evening. If you look in your Bibles to Psalm 103, I'm afraid you're not going to find that verse. He makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flaming fire because it's found uniquely in the Septuagint. More about that in just a moment. Then he goes on to say, this is also, again, continuing with the first chapter of letters to the Hebrews, because it's a gold mine of quotations from the Psalms, interpreted typologically. But of the Son, he says, now listen to this verse very carefully, very carefully. It comes from Psalm 44, as quoted in the New Testament in the letter to the Hebrews. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your comrades. Now, if you were asked to analyze the grammar of that verse and were asked how many people are being addressed in that verse, what would you say? Well, you would have to say two. Again, I won't read it all again, but your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. There are two entities in that verse being addressed as God. Yes. It's very clear. That's why it's being quoted here. I thought that all, all Jewish scripture was uh, watertightedly monotheistic. Here we have two entities being addressed as God. How are we to understand it? There's only one way to understand it, and that is typologically. It is a foreshadowing of the revelation, not simply of two entities, but of three. All who are spoken of as God. Then I'll go further into chapter 2 of the letter to the Hebrews, which gives us really another kind of sterling text. Hebrews 2, 6. It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> That's great. Here the author decides in his quotations he's not going to be so specific. It has been testified somewhere. <laughs> Psalm 8 is where it's been testified. <laughs> Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? 
you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have put everything in subjection under his feet. If you have your Bibles there and turn back to Psalm 8, I'll turn back to Psalm 8 in my Ignatius Press Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition Bible, and I'll read the verse that has some similarity to what the New Testament quotes, but not much. Psalm 8, beginning with verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? That sounds like the same. But then look what follows. Yet you have made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You see? What happened to you have made him for a little while lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. That's what the New Testament is quoting. How did the New Testament author, why did he quote such a text that we cannot find in our handy Bibles? Again, it's because the New Testament author is quoting the Septuagint Psalter. Now, these are a few examples of how the church liturgically does not primarily, and I emphasize primarily, does not primarily rely on the historical interpretation of the text of the Psalms, nor does it emphasize primarily trying to draw personal, subjective life lessons. It's not that either of those things are bad. It's good to know what we can know about the literal sense of scripture. It's good to know how we can apply the Psalms to our lives. But the church primarily understands the Psalms typologically, the way the Lord does when he, when he uses Psalm 109, the way the author of the letter to the Hebrews does when he quotes Psalm 8. They are about him. Let me give you one final example. This is not from scripture, but this is from St. Augustine's famous exposition on the Psalms. And of course, it begins with Psalm 1. By the way, St. Augustine is one of, one of the first to write an uh, exposition that goes through the Psalter to the, to the great depth that he does. And he quotes Psalm 1 1. Blessed is the man who has not gone, uh, who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I'll repeat that. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Blessed is the man, says St. Augustine, is to be understood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God man. He does, has not gone astray in the counsel of the ungodly as the man of earth did, as Adam did and all of his children. He does not stand in the way of sinners, for he came indeed for sinners, but he stood not with them, and the enticements of the world did not hold him. He did not have an earthly kingdom with pride. He did not crave human glory. So here, St. Augustine contrasts the righteous man, Psalm 1 is kind of an introduction to the whole Psalter, and it speaks of the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. 
Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, but is like the uh, tree of life planted by the, the waters whose leaves never fade. St. Augustine says, this is about our Lord Jesus. And when we pray it, when we sing it in church, in the liturgical services, we are to understand it that way. It's not simply a moral instruction. Rather, it is one more of endless examples about every, how everything in the Psalter, in one way or other, has its, it has its typological and its ultimate fulfillment in the living personal word, the word in person, always remembering that sometimes uh, people, especially in the context of comparative religions, they speak of Judaism and Christianity and Islam as the religions of the book. I, I object to that. I, I don't belong to a religion of the book. A religion of the word, yes. But the word is not primarily a book. Secondarily, yes. Secondarily, yes. But primarily, the word of God is the living person of the Son. And in this library of books, we're always remembering that in the Greek, ta biblia is plural. It's not, we've come to think of the Bible as a book since the printing press because it's enclosed between two covers and bound. But the Bible is a library of books. And they are all words about the word. Words about the word. And they only can find their true meaning in the, in the person of the word. So everything in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be fulfilled concerning me, says Jesus. So if we are to make the Psalms the foundation of our prayer, as if we, are, if we are true children of the church, that is a sign of our authenticity that we are doing that. If we do that, we need to pray those psalms, hear those psalms, meditate and digest those psalms with the realization that primarily they are songs of our Lord. And when his church prays them, that's why the praying of the Psalter is such a perfect prayer, because it is the head and members of the church praying together. So, again, just refreshing something from last week, I mentioned that the church has two primary ways of using the Psalms. One is in, in a proper way, and the other is in a sequential way. By proper, I mean using particular Psalms for particular days or particular times of days or particular feast days on the one hand. So a special use, and, and again, uh, you, you had a, a, a presentation just before the class today of how uh, one psalm is used as a as beginning of the office for each day. And, and in the Byzantine tradition in which I live, there are uh, similar, in fact, there are many more uh, daily psalms. The, the newer form of the Liturgy of the Hours that, that uh, most of you, if you pray it, use uh, doesn't have as many psalms that are said every day, in addition to the sequential use. But the, the, the older forms of the office did. For example, in the Byzantine office, 
uh, the morning office or matins begins every day with, with six morning psalms. Then later on, Psalm 50, the psalm of repentance, is prayed practically every day of the year. And then the morning office concludes with the last three psalms, 148, 149, 150, prayed as if they were one psalm. And because they, they use the expression praise him or praise the Lord so many times, they're called in Latin the lauds. The, old, the traditional name of morning prayer. So, and so it was through through all of the hours of the day. There were a lot of fixed songs that were said every day. Uh, but the newer form of the office, the, the, one of the one of the definite intentions of those who fashioned it was to make the office much shorter, and they hoped that by doing that, more people would take part in it. And one of the ways that it was shortened was that a number of the psalms that were said every day were removed. And also the, the Psalter was spread over four weeks. Uh, you know, and I, I mean, I say that, that uh, uh, you know, I'm for anything that, that gets people to, to pray the psalms. So, however, there, there is a history of, of all of this. And in the, in the older forms of the office, there were more psalms. Anyway, so the... Use of the Psalms for, for particular occasions, and then the sequential praying through of the Psalms from 1 to 150. So if we're going to do that, we must do it in the way that the New Testament refers to the Psalms and the way the fathers of the church and the liturgy refer to the Psalms. And that is with their being typologically fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return on the last day. That's what the liturgical calendar also does to immerse us into that mystery. Now, to get to the final point before I run out of time. Uh, and and I, I, I want to say that, that I don't I don't wish in these comments that I'm going to make to, to uh, confuse and complicate your prayer life. However, sometimes uh, it's necessary to realize that some things can't be taken for granted. And the one thing, one of the things that cannot be taken for granted is the text of the Psalter text of the salt. There are, and I think a number of you know this, but perhaps for many of you, it will be, it will be you, you may have heard of this, but maybe you don't know very much about it. What we call the Old Testament, and I, I really wish we wouldn't use that expression too much. I would prefer what Pope Emeritus Benedict uh, uh, speaks of as the law and the prophets. Or, and, and that, of course, comes directly from what our Lord says in the gospel. Uh, Old Testament, now that's a, scripture, a scriptural expression too, but I'm afraid old has, that word conveys uh, so many shades of meaning for us now, that old, even if people say, well, I don't really mean it that way, for many people, old equals obsolete, <laughs> the obsolete testament. Unlike some cultures in the world, it is not a compliment uh, in our culture to say, um, to, to say to someone on their birthday, oh, you look so old. 
That's a compliment in some in some languages and cultures. It means that you have you have come to more of the fullness of wisdom. You're you're uh, you're as wise as sixty as someone is at eighty. <laughs> in some languages say. So, anyway, Old Testament. The text of the Old Testament has come to us in two forms. Two forms. The form that is quoted in the New Testament, almost exclusively, not 100%, but well over 90%. The form of the Old Testament that is quoted in the New Testament and was prayed in the church as the Psalter of the church is from that version of the Old Testament, I'll use that because it's, I'll use that expression because it's familiar to us, that is called the Septuagint. Septuagint comes from the word for 70 in Greek because it refers to the account that when this translation was made approximately 200 years before the birth of Christ, that 70 scholars in the city of Alexandria in Egypt translated the law and the prophets and the Psalms from Hebrew into Greek. They did that because for the most part, the Jewish people had lost the familiarity with Hebrew. It was no longer a spoken language. It was used in the temple. It was used sometime in the synagogues, even in the synagogues, it had been replaced with either Aramaic in Palestine or Greek outside Palestine, sometimes Greek even in Palestine. There were more Jewish people living in the city of Alexandria and Egypt than there were in Jerusalem. The, the dispersion had taken place. And so the familiar language of the time was Greek. So the law and the prophets and the Psalms, the Old Testament, was translated from Hebrew into Greek. That translation from 200 years before Christ is referred to as the Septuagint. And it is the traditional. Old Testament of the Catholic and Orthodox churches and remains so. That has never been abrogated. For example, Pope Emeritus Benedict says this. See if I can find this. Uh, I had a text. I have so many things here. That, uh, yes, here it is. This actually is from the, the famous Regensburg address of, of Pope Emeritus Benedict in which he says, the Greek translation of the Old Testament produced at Alexandria, the Septuagint, is a distinct and important step in the history of revelation. That's quite an uh, astounding thing to say. He didn't say, oh, it's, it's a significant translation. No, it's a, it's a distinct and important step in the history of revelation because it occurred in a way that was decisive for the birth and spread of Christianity. So when the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are quoting the law of the prophets and the Psalms, that is what they quote. Now, what manuscripts were used, what Hebrew manuscripts were used to translate what we call the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek? The answer to that, unfortunately, is we do not know because they no longer survive. 
They probably perished in the great fire in Alexandria, which destroyed the library in, in Alexandria in the fifth century, that, that all of the treasures of the classical world were there and all went up in flames. So the manuscripts that were translated from, from Hebrew into Greek in the, in the second century BC are not available to us. That's the one source of the Psalter and, and the rest of the Old Testament as well. The second one, comes from the Hebrew text as it was preserved by the rabbis and scribes, called the Masoretic text. Sometimes these texts are abbreviated when you read about them. Septuagint is LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. And the, the rabbinic or, or scribal text is abbreviated as MT, Masoretic text. And in this case, the rabbis and scribes primarily living in Palestine and in close to the temple saw themselves as guardians of the text in the, in the original language. But the trouble is the same. Do their manuscripts go back to the first century AD? Do they go back to the second century BC when the Septuagint was translated? They do not. There are no manuscripts that go, Hebrew manuscripts that go back to that to that time. A few fragments, fragments, the biggest one, the largest one of which would be the scroll of Isaiah and the Dead Sea Scrolls. But generally it's fragmented. Now, I, I, I'm sorry if I'm sounding like I'm getting rather technical, but I wish just to leave uh, a couple of, of points with you. And that is that. There are differences in the Septuagint text and the text of the scribes. I mentioned a couple of them already. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him for a little while less than the angels. As contrasted to what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little less than God. It's not an insignificant difference. Another one, its ultimate significance, so I, I don't know, but it hits uh, at a psalm that's probably still dearest to us all, that of Psalm 22 or 23, as many people know it. The Lord is my shepherd. Because uh, in the Septuagint text, we read, you have prepared a table before me in the presence of those who afflict me. You have anointed my head with oil. Your cup inebriates me like the best wine. That's quite different from my cup overflows. Quite different. And in fact, there are numerous patristic commentaries speaking about the mystical life as divine inebriation that are inspired by that Septuagint rendering, another example of how this text, the Septuagint text, has been prayed in the church. I could give you uh, dozens and dozens of examples. But the point is that, let me, let me read one more thing, and, and this is from a source that, uh, if you are interested in pursuing this further than we can do this evening, um, a, a very good paper that you can download, it's called Fulfill, fulfilled is all that David told. Fulfilled is all that David told. 
recovering the Christian Psalter, recovering the Christian Psalter. It is written by Father Benedict Anderson, same last name as mine, but he has the S-E-N spelling, a Benedictine monk of the Silver Stream Priory in Ireland. And here he writes, from the earliest days of the faith, by the way, this that's the title and the, the source is from the, journal, the Sacred Music, the magazine Sacred Music, Winter 2017. From the earliest days of the faith, there has existed a distinct tradition, which might justly be called the Christian Psalter. They are no different from the Psalms of David passed down from Hebrew antiquity, but they exist within the church in a unique form. And this form has come down to us not only in Greek and Latin, but also in various other Christian languages, the ancient liturgical languages of the church, such as Coptic, Armenian, Gothic, Georgian, Ethiopic, Palestinian, Aramaic, and Syriac. So all of these texts, by the way, and here's now here's an example that will be closer to home for most of you. You know that St. Jerome was given the commission by Pope Damasus to do a new Latin translation of the whole Bible. And of course, uh, uh, St. Jerome was a great scholar, a pentaglot, was, was one of the few in those days who was an expert in biblical Hebrew, as well as Greek, Latin, uh, Coptic, and Syriac, a pentaglot. And Pope Damasus had only one limitation on St. Jerome. St. Jerome, he said, you can, you can consult all the manuscripts that you have available. However, in the case of the Psalter, in the case of the Psalms, you are to keep yourself to the Septuagint text. We want a new translation of the Psalms, but the Septuagint Psalter. St. Jerome was not very happy about that because he had many, many Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. He had five different versions of the, of the Septuagint, all kinds of things. And so what he did, he, he obeyed on the one hand because he did do a Septuagint Psalter. And after he finished that, then he did the Psalter again and did one from the, the text of the rabbis too, the Hebrew text. <laughs> but you can see already then in the fourth century, Pope Damasus said to St. Jerome, the Septuagint Psalter is what everybody uses in church, whether Greek, Latin, Coptic, Syriac, everybody, else, everywhere else, and we don't want to tamper with it. It's the text of the church. So, and remain so, remain so. However, however, what has happened in a number of the languages that people read scripture in. Of course, more people in the world speak English than anything else. So the English versions of the Psalter do not generally follow the Septuagint Psalter. The Psalter in all of your English breviaries and, and books of liturgies of, of the hours do, does not follow the Septuagint Psalter, does not. And, for example, this paper, uh, Recovering the Christian Psalter, is actually a plea by its author that this be taken more seriously. Because there has been a departure from a text that has been sanctified by its use, beginning in the New Testament, and through all of, all of apostolic Christian history. Now, 
Please don't think that I am suggesting that, oh, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, put aside all of you, all of your versions of the Psalms that you have now and have prayed for years. I don't, I'm not saying anything so extreme. But um, you might want to obtain for yourself, and there are sources to obtain them. Uh, I won't go through all of them now. Uh, a, a Septuagint English Psalter. And you can use it for yourself and see. Now, to sum up the textual differences, well, let me let me give you one more. We have a few more minutes. Let me give you one more. This one is another one that, uh, before I read it, um, in general, these differences in text between the Septuagint and the scribal Psalter. Uh, could be summed up by, by being described as the Septuagint Psalter is much more explicit in what it says of, uh, that uh, concerning messianic prophecies that the church receives typologically. So there's no wonder that it's considered so important. But here is the end of Psalm 143. Um, in, I'm going to read it first from the from the rabbinic text. This would be the text that you would have in your Bibles and Psalm, Psalm Psalters. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our garners be full, providing all manner of store. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young suffering, no mischance or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Happy the people to whom such blessings fall. Happy the people whose God is the Lord. That's the scribal text. Here is the Septuagint. It speaks for itself. Okay. Um, Rescue me and deliver me out of the hands of aliens whose every word is falsehood, whose right hand is raised in perjury, whose sons are like plants well nurtured in their prime, whose daughters are made up, adorned like temple images. Their storehouses are full, bursting with all manner of goods. Their sheep are prolific, multiplying as they go. Their oxen are fat. There are no fallen fences, nor breaches in the walls, nor outcries in the streets. Men bless the people whose lot this is, but blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. You see the difference? In the first text, blessing is associated with worldly prosperity. Blessed are the people who have such things. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. May our sons, may our daughters, may our cattle, may our plants have all this prosperity. Here it's those whose every word is falsehood, whose right hand is raised in perjury. They have sons well nurtured in their prime. Their daughters are decorated like temple idols. It's an insult to them. And their storehouses are full and their sheep are prolific. Men bless the people whose lot this is. Men bless the people who have this prosperity. But blessed is the people whose God is the Lord. One thinks of the, the book, the, the, set, the first book in the kind of trilogy written by Cardinal Robert Seurat, God or Nothing. So you could say that there is a deepened spiritual and prophetic sense that is only expressed in the, in the Septuagint Psalter. So I always feel it necessary in any time I 
I have opportunity to speak about the Psalms, to remind people or, or maybe introduce for the first time the, the actuality that there is an official Psalter for the entire church. And that has never been abrogated. It's never been replaced, except it has fallen into disuse by so many. And it's not the easiest thing to, uh, to you, I mean, you can't go to your friendly local Bible store and, and necessarily find one. But if you look, you will, you will. And I recommend it to you. So that I think is going to be a good place to c- conclude these introductory talks. There are many, I, I focused on a very few limited things, but I think in those limited things, they nevertheless express this foundational place of the Psalter in prayer, in both a liturgical and, and personal manner, in both a particular and a sequential manner, understood as these songs sum up in themselves the entire revelation that is found in Scripture, that Anyone who lives in the world of Scripture, not just has some Bible verses in their head, but lives in the world of Scripture, immerses him or herself more deeply in them day by day, that there are ways to do this that are sanctified and and, and blessed by the tradition of the church for 2,000 years. That there is a text that all of the saints that we honor through all of those centuries used. So. Uh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that on the one hand, but I hope it did all in its way hold together and will help you to a, to a deeper uh, and more enriching use of uh, David being first, middle, last, and always in the prayer of the church. So I'll conclude there. Wonderful. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for your time and preparation and careful study that went into these last two Tuesday sessions. I'm glad that you did slip in that last comparison uh, these last few minutes, because that was a striking difference and fascinating. I had never had those put many of us said like that. There could be many more. As I, as I have said, you know, I have, I have presented classes on the Psalms that have gone on for a semester, two semesters, two years. This is the first one for two weeks. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a wonderful job condensing it in a way that we can uh, still take very meaningful things uh, forward into our own prayer and study. So thank you. The first question, uh, we had quite a few of these. I know that you you, you didn't recommend or, or you, you hesitated to, to list off Septuagint translations, but do you have a preferred one that you could re- recommend to folks? Well, I, this is... This is subjective, but I mentioned at the beginning of the first talk, I'm working on my own. Uh, it's not, it's simply not ready for use yet because about a half of it is, and maybe another quarter of it is sort of, but there's about a quarter of it that needs a lot of work yet. So in the meantime, however, there's a number of places that you can turn. Um, one is if you want to get a whole Septuagint Old Testament, Look uh, look up the New English Translation of the Septuagint. They're called NETS, N-E-T-S, New English Translation of the Septuagint. That's easy to find. If you want a, a Septuagint Psalter, uh, one, one example that's available is uh, you, if you look up 
uh, the monastery <clears throat> that is called the Community of the Murbearers, an Orthodox women's monastery in New York State, the Community of the, of the Murbearers. They have uh, a Septuagint Psalter that I, I think they will be willing to make available for a small donation. Now, uh, those two examples, the one I'm, the, the three, the one I'm working on, the one uh, that's in the Nets translation of the Septuagint, also the one from the community of the Merberas, these would all be in a style of English that, that most folks are familiar with. If there are others that are more of the ar uh, archaic or Jacobean English style. Uh, you know, the style of, of the authorized or King James version or the style of the Douay Reims version. Some people, some people are, uh, love that, that particular kind of English very much. And so you can get Septuagint Psalters in that mode of English as well. But I think most people are looking for something in a, a, an elevated and noble but contemporary style of English. Thank you, Father. This next question comes from Jean. Uh, you mentioned at the first lecture, uh, you read a section from St. Athanasius on the Psalms, and then tonight you recommended St. Augustine's commentary, but would you recommend, uh, well, you, would you recommend reading those in their entirety uh, for our own study, and then maybe any other commentaries on the Psalms? Oh, yes, I would recommend both uh, uh, St. Augustine's exposition on the Psalms. You You have in the in the Liturgy of the Hours, in, in the Office of Readings, you have many passages from it that, through the year that, that pop up. Uh, and then uh, St. Athanasius's letter to Marcellinus, that is generally, I think you could probably download that, but you can also find it in the um, um, translation of St. Athanasius on the Incarnation. Uh, it's it's usually in there as an appendix. There's there's uh, well there's a, there's a number of editions of that, but if you look uh, Saint Athanasius on the incarnation with the letter to Marcellinus, I think you can find it very easily. It's it's in print and, and readily available. Yes, those those are the two uh, uh, particularly uh, particularly. Um, available patristic commentaries on the Psalms. However, you could also, if you are interested, uh, look to the two volumes of the uh, ancient Christian commentary on scripture. There's two, I think it's Psalms 1 to 50 in the first volume and 51 to 150 in the second volume. And this is kind of a uh, anthology of commentaries from patristic sources on, on, on various, not sometimes and not on every verse of every psalm, but but still, there's a good selection there. Wonderful, thank you, Teresa. Here on screen, I I think that you had your hand up. Yeah, go ahead and ask your question. Okay, um, so Father, you mentioned last week that the the Psalms encompass the whole Bible. Yes, um, and this week you were talking. Yeah, yeah, that it's a distillation of it. And, and, and this week you were talking about the typological reality of the Psalms. Um, and I, I have this image and kind of analogy in my mind um, of, uh, of like stained glass windows, like the, the tradition of stained glass windows in the church. Or, and I know this isn't a, 
good comparison, uh, but icons in yeah. the Eastern church. Uh, could you kind of say that the Psalms to the Bible are like icons or stained glass windows? Oh, I think very much. I think yeah. very much. And I think it's, I think it's a good, uh, a good analogy. Um, verbal, verbal icons. Yeah. We're, we're used to, of course, we're not used to speaking of icons as being verbal, but I think we can uh, by analogy. So there are visual icons, there are verbal icons, there are icons in time. Time is meant to be a doorway into eternity. Uh, why do we have such things as the divine office or the liturgy of the hours? It's so, it's so that time may be sanctified. Morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, night prayer, the sanctification of time. So that time does, I, I, I think I referred to last class, Abraham Joshua Heschel's uh, uh, use of the expression, time is a fuel to be burned so that I can, I can uh, force my, my control over my little piece of space. Here time is a, uh, a window, a door into eternity. Icons, visual icons are often called windows into, into the kingdom of God. And likewise, there are verbal icons as well. So sure. Ahmed, go ahead uh, here on screen. Hello, Father. Um, is there, do you know if it's if there's so, if it's appropriate to have like an interpretation of, like let's say, of of like of the same verse, uh, in like two different senses beside the beside the literal sense, if sure. they don't contradict each other. Sure, sure. You can have, uh, you can in in many cases you can have all four senses work in tandem. They are not. They are not exclusive. You won't be able to do that with every single verse of scripture, but you can do it sometimes. Can Can you have two different interpretations of the same sense? Would that be? I think so. I think so because remember that that we are not talking about uh, dogmatic definitions here, and that's why. And, and and it seems to me that that in the in the liturgy, in the divine office, especially in the East and the West, that's exactly what you have uh, in in the hymns of the church, which often are reflections or extensions of the psalms. You can have many many different. Uh, uh, they're not they're not opposing to to each other, but many different ways of expressing what what the psalm is meaning to convey. For example, uh, today uh, in the in the Byzantine office, where of course every day we have we have a uh, festival office for the for the the Dormition or Assumption all this week, and there's a hymn that says, see if I can quote it, it, it uh, pretty uh, accurately. Um, it's speaking of it's speaking of both the angels and the apostles beholding this great wonder of of the falling the falling asleep and the assumption of the virgin, and so it's a it's a kind of creative poetic reflection upon this, and it has the apostles when they saw your passing into into eternal life, they cried out in the words of the psalm, "This is the change of the right hand of the Most High." Well, that comes from Psalm 76. 
Uh, and, in, and initially, historically, it's applied to the Exodus, something new. This is a change in the right hand of the Most High. But so what, what's it saying? It's saying, well, now in the passing of the Virgin, both in body and soul in heavenly glory, this is really something new. So this is a change wrought, a new wrought, something new wrought by the right hand of the Most High. And then it says they cried out again, He dwelt, He dwelt within you, and you shall never be moved from Psalm 45. Which originally, of course, historically, is referring to the Holy of Holies in the temple. But of course, we know that that Our Lady is the true Ark of the Covenant. So there's a great deal of, of creativity there within the tradition. So there you have. You have historical, typological, and ultimate altogether. Father, this next question comes from Joe. He asks, what do we do with the Psalms where David describes uh, the horrible butchery of enemies and other yeah. violent passages? Yes, yes, I mentioned those, actually. I didn't, I didn't answer this question. This is, this is uh the way that the tradition answers it. Actually, if you want a, a contemporary, not, not from a church father, but from somebody who's a very good writer, from C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, he has a chapter on those imprecatory or cursing Psalms, smash their heads and uh, everything, you know, their children. Now, the fathers of the church say, first of all, that we must continue to pray the Psalms in, in, in their integrity. It's not for us to cut the Psalms up. We're not, we're not Thomas Jefferson, you know, who, who uh, Th Thomas Jefferson carried around the New Testament in his pocket, except he had taken his handy straight razor and sliced out of it anything that was miraculous because he was a deist and didn't believe in the miraculous. And he said that that everyone must must give heed to the teachings of Jesus because he was the great teacher. But he but he did not believe in him as son of God. Well, that's what comes when you take your razor and start slicing out things from the Holy Scriptures. They must they must be taken in their integrity. That's what the church does. But we are not certainly as as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are not going to go out and start smashing smashing the heads of people. So what are we speaking of here? I think this might sound surprising to you, but I think that these psalms are best understood from the ultimate sense, from the anagogical sense. They refer to the ultimate conflict and defeat and destruction of evil in the world. And that will not be accomplished. The scripture is full of it, the Old and New Testament, everywhere from Genesis to Revelation. This will not be accomplished by a quick poof from God. There is a struggle and a great tribulation. All the images of the prophets and the apocalypse speak of it. That there is this war that is going on. And so, uh, the, for example, the fathers will say, yes, smash the heads of the evil children. And who are those evil children, they will ask. They will say, there are, there are these things that arise out of my heart from where the Lord says in the gospel is the source of all wickedness. Things that come out of a man, these defile a man. C.S. Lewis says that, yes, pray the, pray the cursing songs and be humble enough to say that if I fit this description, let these curses come on me too. 
be honest. Now, the other thing that is said about these Psalms is that, as the scripture says, a vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So we are not to, we cannot each subjectively place ourselves in the in the person of God and you know direct direct a particular imprecatory psalm upon one person or one thing. We can't use them that way. But I think it's a big mistake. I'm I'm sure of it. That's a it's a big mistake to say, well, uh to, you see what comes from restricting them to the, to their historical sense. Then we say, well, they don't apply in any historical sense anymore, so down the drain they go. And that's not the way. That's not the way. They are inspired texts, as is all the rest of Scripture. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.